you pursuing a natural lifestyle for yourself and your family? Are you concerned about the standard American diet and options available for healthcare? Are you curious about herbs for health or already practice home herbalism? You've come to the right place. My mom, Naomi Kilbrick, is a Christian clinical herbalist and owner of Lower Chi Wellness. She teaches simple ways to live in a more healthy way and to work with plants to promote and restore health. Welcome to the Family Herbalism Podcast. Welcome back, you guys. It is good to have you here. So normally, I share podcasts that have a lot of information about health issues where I leave you with practical tips to apply to your life and I leave you with herbal information that you can take home and uh, you know incorporate into your family's routine. But today I'm going to be doing something a little bit different. Today I'm going to actually be sharing a personal story. And so this isn't going to be so much about the how, but about the yes you can and the fact that you can face a mountain of an autoimmune condition or a chronic illness and you can climb that mountain. So I hope that in this process of sharing this story that you will be encouraged and you will feel seen and recognized um, if this is something that's familiar to you, if you have a chronic health condition and you feel like you're alone. I hope that this story will um, offer you a more hopeful perspective. So this is really going to be about my daughter Daphne's story and she has a long and complicated health story that has brought our family significant distress and major life changes but in the midst of the hardest nights it was my deepest prayer that God would use her story and our experience to help others and it is now. I have been able to use our hardship to draw attention to a much neglected area of disease and help people to find healing and hope. And so my goal in sharing this podcast is simply to share our personal experience so that if you're in a similar situation, you'll find hope in knowing that you're not alone and that there is hope for healing. I am, just so you know, sharing this story with Daphne's permission. She didn't want to be interviewed, but she has no problem with me talking about the story and being able to share it with others in the hopes that it would encourage them. So this story is going to include a lot of ups and downs, and today she is not completely healed. It's not the end of the story, but we are well down that road, and we feel really good about where we're at right now. And so I feel like this is a good time to share with you what this looks like, what exactly is going on. And I know I've made a lot of references to her health situation over the course of these podcasts and talking with clients and writing in my emails. It's kind of sprinkled through because it's a significant part of our family's story for the past really at least several years. So just to give you a little bit of a backdrop, Daphne is 13 years old and for her young age, she has too many diagnoses she has been diagnosed officially with intermittent accommodative esotropic strabismus, which is an eye turn that's caused by a brain signaling issue. And so that's being addressed and we've made a lot of progress there. She also has celiac disease and mast cell activation syndrome. 
And she also has symptoms of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and during flares will have symptoms of postural orthostatic tachycardia or um, POTS syndrome. So these are some of the official words that go along with her health story. But because I believe that we are way more than our diagnoses, I also have to tell you that Daphne is an incredible artist. She is fantastic with babies and small children and has been saving for a couple of years now to build a tiny house. She dreams of opening a daycare and having as many cats as her tiny house will hold. And today she is... Uh, she actively creates um, art for people for, for sale, and she also is tutoring a young cousin in first grade, so she's very busy and has lots of awesome things going on in her life. But mast cell activation syndrome is a complicated issue, and it's a condition that is significantly underdiagnosed. It's sort of like Lyme disease, where it can have lots of different types of symptoms, and they can easily be uh, misdiagnosed as something else. And so it's something that is not understood very well and really has been just getting more attention in maybe the past 10 years or so. It's been becoming more, um, we've been becoming more aware about it in, in our general society. So according to the American Journal of Medical Science in 2018, the median time from onset of symptoms to diagnosis is 30 years. They say that most people develop it around puberty, but don't get correctly diagnosed until they're middle-aged. They also say that the average number of symptoms is 20, and the average number of comorbidities is 11. That means... Um, other illnesses that are going alongside the mast cell activation syndrome or are somehow connected to it, but are distinct illnesses in themselves. And the top uh, comorbidities are GERD, hypertension, multiple chemical sensitivities, and abdominal pain that doesn't have a clear um, reason for diagnosis. Daphne's story in particular goes back to when she was even a baby. She had colic when she was just a few months old that kept her up at night a lot. You know, nowadays we we understand that colic happens for a reason. Babies don't just cry because they feel like crying. There's usually a reason for it. And colic has now been connected to having, you know, being an early sign of digestive instability and things going on with their digestive system. And then when she was a toddler, she had um, a large number of unexplained fevers. She frequently appeared to be sick but had no other symptoms besides a fever. And I remember one day in particular where she woke up from a nap and her fever was quickly approaching 105 degrees. And I panicked and put her in an ice bath and, bath and gave her Tylenol and yarrow and all the things and we got it back down again. But there was no explanation for it. And we just assumed that she was sticking her fingers in her mouth and you know, ate something outside that, you know, maybe it was a bacteria or something that got her immune system all hyped up. Well, looking back on that, we now know that unexplained fevers are also one of the earliest signs of celiac disease. So even then, when we didn't realize there was a problem, she w her body was already reacting. 
And then she grew up, um, you know, those first few years especially were very difficult with her behavior. She was a very strong-willed child. She still is, but behaves a little bit better now. Um, throughout early the early school years, she had severe brain fog. And then by age five or six, the severe stomach pain began. And then at one point, I think about the time she turned seven, she got up one night and started describing this nerve pain, uh, which I recognized as nerve pain, but she said there was like a line going down the middle of her body and one half of her body hurt and the other side did not. And I looked it up because that was a very specific type of symptom for a seven-year-old to describe and found that um, that really only happens in people who have been alcoholics for a long time or they have celiac disease. And so at that point I decided it was time to stop hemming and hawing over this gluten issue and pull it out. And we went through two weeks of literal hell with her writhing on the floor in pain. She had this major withdrawal um, process that she went through. And then all of a sudden at two weeks, it just stopped. Like suddenly all the symptoms were gone. The pain was gone. The headaches were gone. The brain fog was gone. The behavior issues were going away. Um, it was it was almost miraculous. And for about three years, she had no symptoms at all. We just didn't give her anything with gluten and she did great. But then, so three years later, she was 10 years old. It started to come back with a vengeance. And this time it wasn't just the symptoms that she had before, there were a lot of symptoms that were suddenly developing and it completely changed everything. So the brain fog came back, the stomach pain came back and between October and December of 2018, the situation got worse and worse. And finally, at the end of December, during Christmas vacation, I remember sitting down with her on her bedroom floor and we compiled a list of symptoms that we were gonna give the pediatrician um, so that we could try to figure out what was going on. And so this literally, I'm going to read off to you. This is the list of symptoms that she gave me and which I observed in her. She had daily headaches, frequent migraines, usually after eating, constant stomach pain and bloating. Her limbs would feel, quote, achy and jittery at bedtime. She had a heavy feeling in her chest, which, which was interfering with her breathing. She had constant anxiety and worry. She had a frequent urge to pee, but no relief afterwards. Insomnia both at bedtime and during the night, and for a while she was up almost every hour. She had brain fog, difficulty concentrating at school, and processing issues. She was frequently angry. She began having hives and almost a constant itchy feeling in her skin, whether or not she had a rash. Her face and chest would be flushed. She had constant fatigue. And she, had, she would have dizziness when she stood up. And later on, I realized that her heart rate was actually increasing by 30 to 40 beats per minute when she would stand up. And she had frequent nausea and joint pain. And then eventually, we would add to this list and add to it panic attacks, jaw pain, a sore, itchy throat, and a cough, numbness of lips and mouth that would happen after certain eating certain foods, she would easily sprain joints. This is still an issue that we're dealing with. She would feel more nauseous when she took a deep breath and she was unable to eat a normal sized meal. She would have to eat small frequent meals because she would get full really, really fast. And then eventually we also began seeing um, 
lower level anaphylactic reactions with uh, including one time where she had cold skin, rapid breathing, she was shaking, the panicky feeling, the dizziness, and seeing black spots. So this was a long list of symptoms, obviously. Um, I'm gonna read to you an excerpt from an amazing book called Mast Cells United by Amber Walker, who had mast cell activation herself. And so she wrote basically this textbook about it. Um, she says, when a thorough, thorough patient history is evaluated, mast cell associated symptoms are often traced back to the early years in patients who have MCAS. Moldering's and colleagues note, quote, symptoms often initially manifest during adolescence or even childhood or infancy, but are recognized only in retrospect as MCAD related. And then she says, the response to degranulation, which is the release of hormones from the mast cells, and we're gonna get into what that means, can vary widely among patients. Acutely, most patients experience an individual and unique spectrum from a mild reaction to a full-blown anaphylactic response that requires epinephrine and other drugs alongside an emergency room visit. Acute episodes that fall somewhere in the middle will typically include flushing or redness of the face, itching with or without hives on the skin, blood pressure drops, difficulty breathing, abdominal cramping, nausea, vomiting or diarrhea, nasal and eye symptoms, throat tightness or soreness, and headaches. On top of these episodic symptoms, patients with MCAD typically experience dozens of problems that fall into their symptom list on a chronic, continual basis, a sort of baseline of instability. And many have strange symptoms that tend to wax and wane for no apparent reason, both sporadic and chronic symptoms are attributed to the fact that mast cells are present across multiple tissue types and are activated by multiple types of signals. Thus, many patients face challenges of having chronic issues plus a sprinkling of anaphylactic spectrum episodes that can range from the rare episode a few times a year to the severe cases of multiple episodes of anaphylaxis per day. There are extreme and rare cases where patients need to be hospitalized and treated with continuous intravenous mast cell stabilizers and monitored constantly due to persistent anaphylaxis. Signs and symptoms of MCAD can include virtually any body system or area. What further complicates accurate diagnosis is the fact that for many patients, the symptoms seem to flare and remit in various timeframes to be triggered by previously benign factors for no apparent reason and to migrate around the body. The symptoms of MCAD have been listed by numerous authors and studies and can be summed up by one word, everything. In all seriousness, most patients have a history of multi-system comorbidities or puzzling ailments, regardless of which type of MCAD they have. And so these symptoms can involve, like again, all the body systems, including the heart, the lungs, digestion, nervous system, eyes, liver, spleen, lymph, skin, muscles, bones, bladder, metabolism, thyroid, adrenal glands, and can also leave the person with chronic fatigue and weakness and fevers. So at first, to be honest, I thought she had either become extra sensitive to the gluten or she had just a really low pain tolerance. And I have read a number of stories from people who have MCAS or MCAD, um, we'll get into that in a little bit, but um, who said that one of the biggest problems they faced as a child was having all these symptoms and not having their parents 
recognized that they were actually not just, you know, not making it up, but they were in a lot of pain. And so I felt, I felt bad because, um, you know, I felt like I should have figured it out sooner that something was wrong, but I can see that actually the time it took for me to figure out what was happening and that this was not, this was actually quite abnormal, um, was really fast. So whereas most people take between 10 and 30 years to get a correct diagnosis, I had my finger on it in three months and she got her diagnosis in less than 18 months. By then, the worst was already over for her, but that year and a half was literally hell for her and for my husband and I. I will never forget the look of terror in her eyes. And I came to recognize the beginning of a flare just by looking into her eyes. I used to compare it to a wild animal, but really it was like looking into the eyes of an abused child who is about to be attacked again. And I don't say that lightly. It literally just, it was heart stopping. That look in her face, I cannot describe it as, you know, any more clearly than that. It was like she was going to be attacked, but the abuse was coming from inside of her and there was not a single thing that I could do to stop it. How many nights she and I slept on the couch together, falling asleep crying as I tried to calm her body down with cuddles and singing, resting between the waves that the symptoms came in. How many days she skipped school because she was too exhausted from trying to survive. How many road trips spent making emergency stops for Benadryl and the bathroom? How many canceled commitments? How many substitute meals brought when visiting family? How many doses of Tylenol and Benadryl and Zyrtec Zyrtec and Pepsid? Sometimes in my sleep-deprived state, I worried that her appendix had actually burst and I was neglecting her medical care by not bringing her to the emergency room. But if I had brought her to the ER every time it looked like she needed it, we would have been making friends with the nurses. For a while, she would have a flare or two every week, and they would last two to five days at best. One major flare took a solid six weeks to snap out of. On one occasion, she was given atropine to dilute her eyes for routine eye exam, and the ride home was spent in what I later realized was an anaphylactic reaction. So one of the things that I had previously believed about anaphylaxis was that you have to have hives and your throat has to be closing up, but that is not the case. There are actually different degrees and expressions of anaphylaxis, and that is one specific type that we see commonly portrayed on movies. And it is not accurate because that is just one expression of anaphylaxis. For that particular episode, I had to half carry her into the house and gave her fairly significant amounts of Benadryl to get it to stop. The first test that she took to confirm any allergies was in early 2019, and it required eating any and all food that she wanted to show uh, that there were, whether or not there were any true allergies. So for a week, she ate pizza, she ate spaghetti, she ate all the things that she wanted to, including those that had gluten, so that we could get the most accurate picture of what her immune system was responding to. But she spent the next two weeks in so much pain that she would try climbing the stairs to her bedroom and sit down on them and cry 
And she doesn't remember this now because I've asked her recently about that episode, but I do. I remember it and I was pissed because there was no easy access to someone who could confirm why my baby girl was hurting so bad. That test came back negative. She had no true allergies, but she couldn't climb the stairs without pain. What was happening? That really made me frustrated. I wrote in her journal two days before the test was actually done, so we were just starting to see the symptoms from that that took a long time to improve. Um, I wrote, she is not reacting as negatively to this stress test as I thought she would. She's had no hives, but stomach pain, muscle pain, difficulty with school and sleep, headaches, migraines, and a sore throat. After the blood test, the symptoms continued to worsen for another week before they improved. So, hey, no hives, but we've got this other list of things that we're dealing with, right? So in early 2020, she received her diagnosis from an allergist. The mast cell release syndrome questionnaire that is used or created by the University of Bonn is often used to identify cases of MCAS. Um, symptoms, blood tests, biopsies can all be used to assess markers for MCAS. And so a score of eight indicates that there is pathologi pathological activation, so something's wrong. A score of 14 suggests MCAS. Daphne scored 19 without labs or biopsies, just the symptoms alone. Her treatment for this actually began as soon as I discovered that we were dealing, what we were dealing with. And this is how it happened. So uh, I do a lot of work around Lyme disease and there was an article that popped up online somewhere that had to do with Lyme disease and mast cell activation syndrome. And at the time I had no idea what MCAS was. We were just starting to see these symptoms with Daphne and I had no idea they were connected. I was simply reading something about Lyme disease and some new information about it. But when I read through the list of symptoms, I realized that she had every single one of them plus some. So I turned to a friend that I knew who had this condition and she suggested that we try a low histamine diet and antihistamine medications. So just regular over-the-counter um, allergy medicine or using Benadryl. So we took out strawberries and tomatoes, which are super high in histamine, and immediately symptoms began diminishing. Like within 24 to 48 hours, the stomach pain was almost gone and other symptoms were beginning to go away. So we eliminated um, various foods that were high in histamine. We tested some different things. We figured out basically over the course of several months what her uh, triggers were, and this is what they included strawberries, tomatoes, reheated leftovers, beans, sour cream, ripe fruit, pineapple, short grain white rice, eating more than two eggs at a time, unwashed fruit, canned food, chocolate, ham, clove, paprika, too much ice cream, frozen corn, vinegar-based dressings, bone broth, chicken stock, avocado, bell peppers, buttermilk, cayenne, asparagus, Cheerios, black pepper, peanuts, dried fruit, and atropine, store brand Benadryl, dust, hunger, stress, and viruses. It turns out that while a certain physical triggers could set off a flare, her body was so used to associating stress hormones of any kind or reason with a flare that the stress itself would trigger a flare. 
One time, she broke out in hives because she missed her afternoon snack. I wrote in January of 2020, Daphne had a major histamine attack on Thanksgiving and it set her back months. She is currently having her fifth episode in six weeks, this one because we tested sour cream. And in March, I wrote that we were still having frequent episodes and it was interfering with her ability to do school to the point that we were reviewing easier math and reading and that was it for her entire school because we couldn't handle any more than that. So this is a little more than a year into this process. Still still struggling to get stable. Thankfully, now she can actually eat many of these foods in small amounts, but it has taken three years of a lot of work and patience. Before I share, share how we have gotten to this point that we're at today um, and what her health looks like now, I will tell you about what MCAS is and what it has to do with mold toxicity and celiac disease. So mast cells are a type of white blood cell. They're found in all tissues in the body but have greater concentration in mucosal linings and connective tissue. It's estimated that there are between 7 and 20,000 mast cells in every cubic millimeter of skin, and that's just the skin. Mast cells contain over 200 different chemicals, including two that are well-known, serotonin and heparin, as well as prostaglandins. We know that each of these are really important for bodily functions. They also release mast cells, or sorry, not the mast cells, also release histamine. And they're responsible for activating the immune system when a threat is present, such as venom or sap from a poisonous plant so that it doesn't kill you. Um, also from the book Mast Cells United by Amber Walker, I have a little more information about what mast cells are. She says, researchers, Walker and colleagues describe mast cells as the jack-of-all-trades immune cells that have the ability to interact with and modulate the function of many different cells throughout the entire body. They have also been called yin-yang modulators in allergic responses because they possess the ability to both suppress and add inflammation. Likewise, mast cells can contribute to both remission and exacerbation of symptoms. Mast cells are a type of white blood cell that serve as an important part of the body's immune system. Mast cells are present in nearly all types of tissue. Researchers often suggest that mast cells are akin to immune system watchdogs. Ryan and colleagues note, in keeping with the long-standing theory that mast cells evolved as a means of protection from parasitic infection, these cells seem to be quite important as early sentinels of immune activation. Without them, we would not survive. So in, even though we talk about all the things that can go wrong with mast cells in these conditions, it actually is very important that we have them. In a nutshell, sometimes the immune system malfunctions. And so whether because of genetics or mold toxicity or Lyme disease or a previous issue with a gut like Crohn's or celiac, or viruses like Epstein-Barr, which can manipulate the immune system, or any other complicated condition, the mast cells begin to malfunction and they either produce too much histamine or they dump their histamine too easily or they can't break down the used histamine efficiently or a combination of these. 
The cumulative effect is that a person with MCAS becomes hypersensitized to their environment or the things they ingest, so they have an allergic reaction even without any true allergies, and it frequently includes different levels of anaphylaxis, which, like I said before, may or may not include hives and swelling of the throat. The treatment plan that is usually given to people is that they are supposed to avoid their known triggers and take medication to help stabilize the mast cells. And if they know what the cause of it is, then they can begin to address it. But most people don't get to that point, unfortunately. By removing the known triggers and the high histamine food, we were able to get Daphne's flares down to periodic instead of constant. And by adding in 20 milligrams of Zyrtec and 40 milligrams of Pepsid AC and Benadryl usually a few times a week, we got the flares down to once or twice a month, which would only last a few days. Um, and now they happen really only about once every few months. Two years after the symptoms began, we tested our house for mold because one of the two most likely causes of mast cell activation syndrome is mold toxicity. And we had lived in a uh, home that had mold in it for a while, but it had been a couple of years. And so we decided we would test our current house, which was brand new. Um, and we unfortunately found that we did have mold in the kitchen, the bathroom, and the girls' room. So we bought an ozone generator to kill it because ozone, um, the, the mold, um, the fungi cannot survive. Most things cannot survive in an environment that doesn't have oxygen. And so the ozone generator was able to remove the oxygen from the air for a period of time and kill off the mold. We also switched our body care products. So I started making my own soaps, shampoo and conditioner, and um, uh, we already had our own sunscreen and things like that to be able to pull out ingredients that might possibly be triggers as well. And we also got her a metal water bottle to replace the plastic one. And we started using more glass containers. We changed out her bedding completely, got her a new pillow, new blankets, new sheets. And we experimented with having her meds compounded instead of having the additives. So most of the time when you get a prescription medication, it has um, additive components to it to help preserve it and uh, bind it together. So we tried special ordering hers from a pharmacy uh, about an hour away that was able to compound it using just the ingredients that are absolutely needed. Um, and so we did that as well. And then we also bought an air doctor, which is a, an, air fil an air filtration unit, which goes down to very, very small microns. And so we're able to remove large particles from the air as well as uh, mold, tiny spores of mold. And we started giving her herbs to help her detox, to calm her mast cells and soothe her gut. She started taking activated charcoal, glutamine, uh, N-acetylcysteine and chromalin sodium to heal her gut and enable her to eat more foods. And so in September of 2020, I wrote in my journal, no major flares for two months. Our environmental toxin reduction process seems to have been helping. We have pushed it a bit and so far so good. That means I was at that point feeling comfortable enough to experiment with adding in certain foods. And then two weeks after that, I wrote that I realized she had been having a chronic sore throat for several weeks, 
probably due to the famotidine. So I tried cutting it back to 50%. Uh, the famotidine is the pepsidase. So I tried cutting it back to a half dose. The sore throat disappeared within two to three days, but insomnia took its place. She was awake at 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m. A few days into that, she had another flare. Some unknown trigger probably that came from the stir fry. I had had a bag of frozen vegetables and I didn't really know, you know, where each of those came from. And she had major indigestion. So I brought the famotidine back up to full dose and two to three, two to three days later, it seemed everything had balanced out. The indigestion ended, but then the sore throat came back again and that's when we did the compounded um, medication. So Eventually, we were able to bring it back to regular prescription famotidine, not have to pay to get it uh, compounded, and the sore throat is usually not present. So, very slowly, the flares went from weekly to monthly to every few months. She has only had one decent flare so far this year with mild symptoms occasionally whose source is easily identified. Usually that means she forgot to take her medication the night before. Um, recently we also, uh, she was exposed to mold in an old building on a weekly basis and we ended up having to kind of change things up again with our schedule to make sure that she wasn't exposed to that. Um, and the sore throat from that particular issue was able to be um, taken care of. So it's been three and a half years. She's now only taking five milligrams of Zyrtec instead of 20 and 10 milligrams of Pepsid instead of 40, along with her vitamins and glutamine that she's still taking. And she can now eat moderate amounts of many of the foods that would previously have sent, sent her into a tailspin. We have over time, again, like everything is sort of... Um, we play it by ear, we see how things are going right now, we experiment, we try new things. It's a learning process. There is no concrete plan that works for every person who has MCAS. Even the food lists are different. You know, you look up high histamine foods and you're gonna get completely different lists. You know, there are certain things that are pretty similar from person to person, but it is a learning experience where you really get to know that particular person and their particular needs and triggers and um, solutions that will work for them. But herbs that we have worked with for her uh, include burdock, chaga, plantain, tulsi, rose, milky oats, chamomile, marshmallow, nettle, yellow dock, and peppermint. And we have done others as well. Um, we've had to be really careful about avoiding box teas that have unknown ingredients in them because, for example, we bought a chamomile tea once and then it turned out that there was, um, I think there was like cinnamon or something in there and in like minute doses. So it wasn't advertised on the box. You had to like read it in the, in the fine print and she was having a flare because of that. So we had to be careful about that and whole plants were much preferred. But mixed into this whole process, we've also done a low FODMAP diet, which also helped for a little while. We've used digestive enzymes to help with the digestive symptoms, probiotics, magnesium for sleep, uh, zinc to help heal our gut, quercetin is highly recommended, 
and infrared sauna use worked for a little while, helped to help uh, as part of a detox process. We also switched to drinking spring water for a season and that was really great. Now our water situation is improved. So uh, we, we're not really worrying so much about the spring water, but that can include minerals. That's very helpful as well. And um, so we've, we still have to be careful about dust can be a trigger, mold can still be a trigger, and there's several foods that we still have to be really careful about. Um, this has been a time consuming thing, three and a half years, four years. Uh, it's been energy sapping. It has been humbling as an herbalist to have to rely on medications and to seek help from medical care providers as needed. And at times, it has required extra investment, monetary-wise. But now I can send her on sleepovers and not have to worry about it. I can sneak in extra ingredients. I can keep Benadryl in the back of the medicine cabinet. We are making headway for her. And I do have hope for a full recovery where at some point in time, her gut will have been healed enough that she can go back to just avoiding gluten and be in a much better situation. Um, like I said, there are lots of options for healing and we are still experimenting with things. And right now, to be honest, I'm not entirely thrilled with the situation with her joints. I feel like the Ehlers-Danlos thing is something that we're going to have to pay more attention to. But at this point in time, food is as an easier thing now than it used to be. So I did want to leave you with some recommendations, some ideas, because I know there's a lot of people out there and maybe you're listening to this and you're thinking, you know, I don't have MCAS necessarily, but I do have a chronic illness and nobody seems to understand it. And I feel like there are certain concepts that are really important to know, regardless of what your situation is. Um, and so I'm going to leave you with some recommendations. If you are interested in learning about histamine in particular, there are a few different websites. Actually, there's some really great blogs out there too that you can read. They're written by um, people who have, exper who have experienced uh, MCAS themselves. One is healinghistamine.com. This is a blog that has lots of helpful information the Hoffman Center, a center has an R, uh, R E, so C E N T R E, HoffmanCenter.com. This is a blog that has articles about MCAS as well as other types of uh, health situations where diet is really important. And then there is HistamineIntolerance.net, which actually is a really great website. It has um, a great food list, a quiz to help you recognize your own um, intolerances. It has recipes um, and then it has just uh, some really great um, blog posts about, you know, um, histamine in the news and different allergy information and things that would be a great resource for you. So recommendations, four different things. Number one, I would ask you to ask yourself, what gives my life meaning and purpose? What do I get up for each day? And this is really important because when you're down, when you are exhausted, when you're constantly having to fight, when you're having to live differently than most people, 
it can get really discouraging. It can definitely get you down in the dumps. And so for Daphne, that looked like art. She loves art. She would stay up late at night and she would make gifts of art for other people and she'd make all kinds of different art, but that was something that really brought her joy. And so even if she was in pain, she could still make art and it would help her to feel better. Um, There's another book that I found called Toxic, Heal Your Body from Mold Toxicity, Lyme Disease, Multiple Chemical Sensitivities, and Chronic Environmental Illness. It was written by Dr. Neil Nathan. And toward the end, he had this really interesting chapter about about healing and emotional concepts around those who make uh, progress in their healing and those who don't. And he said, having studied this population for many years, I am more inclined to believe that those who are more functional and productive have been able to push through their debilitating symptoms because their work and their lives are in better accord with their personal meaning and purpose. Accordingly, I have for many years asked my patients early on in treatment, what gives your life meaning and purpose? Those who have a ready answer are far more likely to respond well to treatment than those who look back at me with a blank expression and admit, I just don't know. So here's the thing, the end of recommendation number one, what gives your life meaning and purpose? What do you get up for each day? If you don't know, this is a good place to stop and think about it. Whether you have a conversation with a trusted person or whether you journal about it, or maybe you um, record yourself even talking to yourself about this so that you can really go back and think about it. What brings you joy? What gives your life meaning? And that gives you a reason to do each day. But I want to follow this up with recommendation number two, which is what will you do when you are well? And this is something that I like to focus on with my clients because I feel like it's it's the best next step. It's not just about what gives you joy right now, but it's about having a vision for the future. Why are you fighting to get better? Why aren't you giving up? What is it that you're looking forward to? What are you fighting for? Right? So you have to have a vision. And so Daphne had this savings that she started in the midst of her illness. In some of the hardest days, she would make drawings of this tiny house that she was saving for. And she had this vision for this daycare with all these cats that she's going to have. And this was something she was fighting for. And so I definitely suggest that if you don't have a vision right now for where you're going, that you create one. And number three is be your own advocate. So if your doctor can't help you because they don't have information about what's going on with your health, you can get a new one, number one. But you can also ask around, you can read books, you can get informed. There's information out there and you can give yourself the same love and attention that you would give someone else that you love. So be your own advocate. Even if you have an amazing doctor or herbalist or other healthcare provider, you still have to advocate for yourself because you're the one that knows your body best you understand what it's like to live in your body and you understand what your goals are and what you're trying to accomplish. So you have to be able to speak up for yourself and that is okay. That is good. So do that. And number four, don't give up. (laughs) 
seriously, you have to fight for yourself, all right? This is kind of like you're, you're being your own advocate, yes, but you're also going to have bad days, and that's okay. Remember that tomorrow is a new day. You can start fresh, you can pick yourself up, and you can keep going. Two steps forward, one step back. Sometimes you're going to take extra steps back in the process of going forward, and this is normal. That's okay. Don't give up because better days are coming. So that's really, (laughs) in a 43-minute nutshell, that is what's going on with Daphne and her story. Um, You know, it's it's been a long, long journey. The past three and a half years with MCAS, yes, but her whole life has been a story of stomach problems, digestive issues, and things that have affected her nervous system and everything else, but we're still fighting and she is making progress and she's going to be one well-informed young woman (laughs) as she becomes her own person and grows up and moves out of the house. She's going to know how to fight for herself and she's going to know how to take care of her body because of this journey that we've been on. And I would dare say she's going to offer some pretty excellent advice and encouragement to other people who are fighting chronic illnesses. So I hope that you have taken some encouragement from this story. And definitely, I'm sure you understand our situation a little bit better than you have before, perhaps. Um, If you have any questions about histamine in particular or MCAS, or um, you have a chronic illness that you feel like you're not getting support for, I would love to chat with you some more about that. You can reach out at laureltreewellness at gmail.com. You can also learn about the consultations that I do and help people walk through that process of finding uh, a diet, a lifestyle, and herbs that will best suit their needs by visiting laureltreewellnessllc.com. And I, I hope that Again, this has been an encouragement to you, and I look forward to chatting with you again next week. So have a wonderful week, and God bless, and I will talk to you soon. The Family Herbalism Podcast is created for educational purposes only. You are responsible for any and all medical and health decisions you choose to make. If you experience a medical emergency, please contact appropriate medical providers. To receive herbalist support, please visit www.laureltreewellnessllc.com. If you enjoy this podcast and find it helpful, please share it with your friends and family. Thank you for listening.